Welcome to the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Anne Louise Gittleman is a New York Times bestselling author of over 37 books on diet, detox, the environment, and women's health. For more than four decades, Anne Louise has been regarded as a leading voice and visionary in nutrition and who has fearlessly stood on the front lines of holistic and integrative medicine. For more information, check out annlouise.com. That's A-N-N-L-O-U-I-S-E.com. And here's your host, Anne Louise Gittleman. Hi, everyone. Anne Louise Gittleman here for First Lady of Nutrition. Today, we're going to focus on In Search of the True Cause of Autoimmunity. And my guest is Dr. Sangeeta Pedro, who is a graduate of the National University of Natural Medicine. I love Dr. Sangeeta Pedro because she's one of the smartest NDs I've ever spoken with. So listen in to this very fascinating interview. Dr. Pedro, welcome to First Lady. Thank you for having me. So you are a naturopathic physician and you specialize in autoimmunity. Why are there so many autoimmunist disorders? <laughs> Easy question, right? Yeah. Um, well, I don't, autoimmunity is not new. I think that we're just seeing more and more of it because we live in a world that is more toxic these days. We're exposed to more things in our food and water. Our, our human bodies can't evolve fast enough to keep up with what's happening around us. Um, and when the immune system is overly burdened, it's going to tend to be triggered in some people, not everyone, but in many people into a hyperreactive state, which is autoimmunity in all of its myriad of you know, presentations, there are lots of diseases that we give names to, but in the autoimmune category, but the underlying connection is that the immune system has gone awry. Does the immune system actually attack itself? Does it attack its own bodily tissues? Yes, in a broad sense, autoimmunity is where the body, the human body has the immune system has gotten confused and starts to attack various tissues. And that's why there are so many autoimmune diseases, because we have lots of different tissues and ways in which the body can hyperreact. On one end of that spectrum is cancer. We all know that cancer is an overproduction of self. Um, so that also is an autoimmune issue. And then on the very other end of the spectrum, we have things like seasonal allergies, which nobody even pays any mind to, but that's also a hyper-responsive immune system. So, and on that continuum, you have every other kind of autoimmune condition. And I'd say the majority of chronic illness, if not all, is autoimmune, at least partially in nature. So as a naturopathic physician, how do you get to the true cause of what has gone awry? Well, we do our best. <laughs> we don't always, we're not always able to find the singular cause if there is one, but there's generally a multitude of things impacting someone's immune system when they're in an autoimmune state. So we look at all possibilities of things that could impact be impacting the body and in two large camps, toxins and infections which I'm sure you have a lot of guests who talk about. So toxins are anything from mold toxins to chemicals, to heavy metals, things in that category. 
um, and there can be multiple, and then any kind of chronic infection, and it's generally more than one, but bacteria, parasites, um, anything in the Lyme disease camp, which is not just spirochetes, but a variety of other organisms as well. Um, and so we try to look at all of those things diagnostically through standard blood work, through specialty testing, um, good medical history, current symptom picture, and then putting all of those together into a working diagnosis. And the diagnosis in name is not so important, um, like what we decide to call that autoimmune condition. It can be helpful to know which body systems are being affected, um, but with the understanding that autoimmunity is really an immune system problem at its core. And so we wanna find all the things that are overburdening and impacting the immune system and then remove them as best we can um, in some sort of order uh, that's easiest for the body to manage. And that varies from person to person. So do you see a pattern these days? Do you see more prevalency of Lyme? Do you see mold? Do you see parasites? Do you see heavy metals? Do you see spike proteins? What are you seeing? Uh, well, in my patient base, which is... I, I'd say 95% of what I see is a combination of chronic infections. So the, the Lyme disease category, including viruses and all the various things that ticks carry, mold illness for sure um, in the toxin camp. And then of course, toxins and heavy metals, but I would say those are at least in the order in which I tend to treat those come last or come later in um, in the order of things when we're treating somebody. So I'm I'm seeing a lot of mold illness. I mean, the world's getting older, the buildings we've built are getting older. As things age, they rot. So we build buildings out of paper and wood, which is perfect mold food. And you don't have to live in a super wet environment to have mold in your house. So I think mold illness is a huge, huge underlying factor for many people with autoimmune illness because of how it impacts the immune system, creates fungal overgrowth in the body, which allows more room for parasites to persist if they're present, Lyme disease to persist if it's present. So as a foundational underlying factor, I would say mold exposure and the resulting illnesses that it creates is a, is a really big one. How do you test for mold exposure? Ooh, so that's a tricky question. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you're a very capable gal. Yeah, well, it's tricky because I think in the natural holistic functional medicine world that I operate in, in general, there's a tendency to rely too heavily on testing um, of all kinds as the crux of diagnosis. And I think that's a, um, a big mistake. A lot of us have lost our ability to trust our clinical diagnostic skills that we were trained in. So for me, testing is just one leg of a stool. And with mold illness, I always, if I suspect fungal overgrowth in someone, which is super common in the sinuses and the gut, I always ask about mold exposure from as far back as someone can remember. So I kind of do an intake on the houses and timeline of where they've lived, the illnesses they've had over the course of their life, 
that to me is really the crux of a mold diagnosis. But then as far as testing goes, we want confirmatory things. There, you know, mycotoxin urine tests are um, available from a multiple multitude of labs. And I have my favorites. Uh, that will give you body burden. So it'll tell you how many toxins are, it'll, it'll point to the load of mycotoxins stored in the tissues, but it doesn't give you a timeline particularly. Um, it will give you some indication if there's current exposure, so that can be useful. And it does give an indication of um, how much yeast overgrowth there is in the body. So that's one that I use a lot. There are some blood work parameters that can be used. I don't tend to utilize those as often only because they're harder to get. You have to go to certain draw stations. It's a little more complex. So I tend to use mycotoxin testing and then testing the house, ERMI testing, inspections, um, variety of different ways to look at the house itself. So shouldn't everybody be taking a mold binder just in case? Um, I actually don't think binders are all that important in mold illness. Um, I think they're over, they're overemphasized. Oh, interesting. Um, so what do you suggest? Well, you do want to get the toxins out of the body, but that's a very individual thing. Many, many, many of my mold patients are constipated. If you have a constipated patient, you absolutely do not want to give a binder. It will simply hold those toxins in the body longer. Um, our natural binder is bile. So number one, you want to make sure. <laughs> you want to make sure that. Yeah, you want to make sure bile is flowing well. And mold illness is known to cause our bile to become kind of thick like butter rather than smooth and clear like olive oil, which is what you really want. And so I very, very often just start with tuning up digestive capacity and getting bile moving and you know, getting people eliminating more regularly and treating fungal overgrowth, like just old school, treating candida, treating yeast overgrowth. You know, we all thought we were past that after 1992, but it, <laughs> we, we did, <laughs> but it really is because mold tends to promote fungal overgrowth in the sinuses and the gut, that system between the nose and the gut is going to become perpetual. They're going to feed each other. And simply treating yeast will often get people eliminating more regularly. And then, of course, you can use binders. This is part of why I don't do chemicals or metals until later on, because you really need to have really open, well-moving, well-binding detox capacity in order to get those toxins out of the body, because you don't want to liberate them and then just have them be recycled, get into the brain, move around and get into other tissues. Uh, that requires a little more effort and it actually requires the body to be a little healthier. So I wouldn't, I don't prescribe binders as a matter of course. Um, I kind of do that uh, as a person specific thing. But don't you also test, you have a nasal swab test, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Tell us a little bit about that and what you do with that. Yeah, I think that's also another um, kind of underappreciated, undertreated area of mold illness and, and chronic gut issues in general. So, I mean, if you just think about it in a common sense way, the mouth and the nose are literally one continuous tube with the digestive tract. And, you know, in a healthy system, a lot of what ends up in the stomach will get broken down by stomach acid, which is our first line of defense against things like parasites and bacteria. 
but in a lot of people, in most people with mold illness and chronic digestive complaints, our stomach acid is not adequate. So a lot of things, as our sinuses clean themselves out, normally just the thin mucus they produce as their natural cleaning mechanism gets washed through the system. And whatever's in the sinuses is going to end up in the in the gut. And if you're you have a compromised patient whose digestive function is low, those things can continually reseed the gut with more fungus. So the reason to treat the sinuses is it, A, it speeds up the process. Because if you treat the whole tube from top to bottom, clean it all out, rebalance the microbiome, you're just going to get quicker and longer lasting results, even if people don't have sinus complaints. And the purpose of the swab is to know what exactly is in there so that you can do compounded, more targeted nasal sprays to, again, just speed up the process. Although there are plenty of over-the-counter options, um, and I love essential oils for this, but they can be harsh for people who do have a lot of sinus irritation. So it just adds more options to the plan uh, by doing those nasal swabs. So what's your favorite over-the-counter sinus cleanser? <laughs> um, there are a couple. You know, what I usually have people do if they can tolerate it. And, and what I find is a lot of people say, oh, I don't have sinus issues. And then the minute you start spraying something up your nose, um, you realize, ah, my sinuses are actually a little irritated. <laughs> you start sneezing and sniffling and getting post-nasal drip and uh, people think that that's a negative reaction to the spray, but that's really just the spray loosening things up and breaking through biofilms and making you aware of some inflammation that was already present. Uh, and so the a simple one I really like is called Nutribiotic. You can get it on Amazon. It's just saline, xylitol, and a little grapefruit seed extract. Uh, it's not going to get rid of really severe overgrowth, it's kind of a gentle biofilm disruptor. So it's gonna start breaking up those hiding places that the fungus and, and antibiotic resistant bacteria hide behind. And that often can be a little sensitive for people when they first start using it, but that goes away over time. And then if people can tolerate it, what I have them do is add one to five drops of an organic essential oil to a full bottle of that nasal spray, because you just unscrew the top and put a couple drops of a good antifungal essential oil. And my favorite starter oil is rosemary. It's very gentle. It doesn't tend to cause as much irritation, but rosemary, thyme, tea tree, and eucalyptus are kind of my go-tos. Mm -hmm. And then each new bottle, people can add more. They, they become, their sinuses become cleaner and less inflamed. And they're, they, they're able to add more essential oils over time. And essential oils are wonderful because they're natural biofilm disruptors. They're anti-everything, really. Those ones are particularly antifungal, but they're also going to get at those antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Um, and they smell nice. You know, they have other effects in the body and the brain. So I really love that. Um, but if it's too much for people, I do find the compounded medicated nasal sprays are often a little easier to tolerate in the beginning. Interesting. Yeah. And is this something you do in your office traditionally? The nasal sprays? Yes, the compounding formulas. Uh, well, those are through compounded um, pharmacies. And so it does. they do have to be made in a sterile compounding pharmacy. And but you can order the testing. 
Oh yes, yeah, yeah. The tests can be shipped to people's houses. Do you work? I was going to ask if you work telepathically. I don't mean that. Do you work with telemedicine? <laughs> you probably do too. Telemedicine. Do you work over the internet? Yes, I do. Primarily, right now, I am in a bit of a transition from in into a new office here in Portland, Oregon. So as I look for an actual brick and mortar building, I am just doing telemedicine at the moment. And how then, do, before I forget, how do people get in touch with you? Um, probably the easiest way would be to just email me um, at drsangeetapedro, so drsangeetapedro at gmail. Um, that's my business email. And while I'm in transition, that's probably the easiest way. I do have a website up that is updated uh, clearskynaturalmedicine.com is my um, private business uh, so there's that as well are you still seeing a lot of lime or is that come and gone the way fungus did in, in 1992 <laughs> uh i think no i think lyme disease is still very okay. uh, yeah i think it's very present it is a lurker it's one of those things that is often underneath um, people can, you know, I think many of us have been exposed to tick bites and all the things that ticks carry and, and our immune systems deal with it in a normal way until we hit a point in life with extra stress or another big illness or something that causes our immune system to be depleted momentarily. And then those infections that are kind of lurking behind the scenes and not really causing a lot of trouble um, can come back to the surface. And I've seen that a lot with COVID in the past couple of years, people who get COVID, um, in my practice, at least a lot of them that end up with long-term effects have some kind of underlying gut condition, parasites particularly, or Lyme disease of some sort, some sort of chronic infection. And the immune response to COVID causes that causes those underlying issues to flare up. And um, I think that's a lot of what's causing the chronic fatigue and mitochondrial disorders and things with COVID. Hi, my friends. Before I go any further, let me take a moment to, to acknowledge my sponsor, Unikey Health at unikeyhealth.com, which is your universal key to health since 1992. I have been a spokesperson for this company for over 30 years. They're the home of all my weight loss plans, the Fat Blasting Bio Builder, which has been featured in national magazines. They also carry the ultimate brain support and the magnesium multitasker. So whether it's weight loss, internal cleansing, or just targeted health support, go to unikeyhealth.com. Tell them Anne Louise sent you. How interesting. Do you see actual Lyme or some of the co-infections? And if so, what are the most, I would say, most harmful co-infections? Hmm. Well, I still think the spirochetes, Borrelia, are really, all the various Borrelia species are really the most uh, entrenched and, and harmful long-term because they, they're kind of the stickiest. They're the hardest to really eradicate um, because of how they hide. The others, although can be damaging as well, in my experience, at least seem to be a little easier to get rid of. Um, and by easy, I'm, <laughs> I don't mean quickly, but um, somewhat easier than spirochetes. So the, the ones I see most commonly are Borrelia and Bartonella. Um, Bartonella seems to be just 
uh, all the time. And also mycoplasma pneumoniae, uh, very, very, very common and, and mimics similar joint patterns to Lyme disease. Um, but we can pick it up as walking pneumonia and then it can become chronic or it can be tick-borne. So those are probably the top three I see causing the most long-term problems. Uh, but of course, the others like Babesia, occasionally Ehrlichia, a lot of viral load, high viral load, um, but not as commonly, at least not in my practice. Do you use any special herbs to get rid of the co-infections in Lyme? Yeah, I, I'm not, um, I'm not an antibiotic prescriber for Lyme disease for the most part. There are exceptions to that rule, of course, if people are newly diagnosed or they have a more acute recent infection, then I think antibiotics and herbs together, especially are more beneficial if you do both. Um, but in general, yeah, I tend to use herbal combinations, um, like for Bartonella, I'm very much a lover of, of Stephen Buhner protocols. Uh, I use a lot of his herbal combinations in conjunction with supplements and other things. Uh, so I like a lot of his formulas. Um, there's one called IHA that's Isatis, Hetunia, and Alcornia. That's really good for Bartonella. Um, so yeah, I, I do tend to use a variety of different herbs for different infections. And what do you do for parasites and what are the most common? So parasites, strangely enough for me, <laughs> have become probably 90% of my practice in the past couple of years. And not for me, because I wrote a book many years ago. Called... I have read your book though. So and when it... I, I knew many years ago it was an underlying cause, but now they're popping up. Yeah. And I, I think even now in, in this realm, again, of environmental illness that I work in, with mold illness and Lyme disease and gut dysfunction, I still think parasites are underappreciated um, and heavily, heavily undertreated. Um, and this is an area where people get way too comfortable with stool tests as the end all be all of whether or not someone has parasites. And that is a huge mistake because parasites, I'm sure, as you know, are very sneaky They've been around forever. They've learned to evolve and hide in our bodies in a way that makes them very hard to find, much like Lyme disease, except they live in the gut, not the bloodstream. Um, so stool tests are only one tiny, not always accurate leg of that stool. Um, and I do think parasites are a huge, huge part of this immune burden that a lot of people have. And they can cause a lot of symptoms in the body that are not gut related directly. And, you know, there's this myth that you have to have diarrhea to have parasites and just totally, not true. Totally <laughs> true. I totally agree. <laughs> totally. And in fact, what I see mostly is chronic parasites cause more constipation um, and kind of spastic constipation, spasming, cyclical symptoms. And, and interestingly, you know, I stumbled into treating parasites because of mold illness. And I just had, I was doing really well with mold illness, treating people, they were getting better. And then they would, I would get them to a certain point and their digestive symptoms would shift and they would end up with these histamine responses. And I finally realized through one patient a few years ago that chronic parasites often come in conjunction with mold 
the fungal overgrowth that's created and then parasites. So it's a triad that I just see again and again and again. And while I think it's recognized in the functional medicine world, it's not treated to the same degree as mold or even Lyme disease, not even yet. though, yeah, not yet. <laughs> well, there's also a, there's a, um, what would you call it? In, in this country, there's just this belief that parasites don't exist here or and that chronic parasitic infection is not a real thing that you get parasites you get acutely ill you have diarrhea and vomiting and, and you're over it, it. And that's right. it. yeah i, I know <laughs> I, I know i know but do you see anything on a blood test that would be a red flag for parasites eosinophils or monocytes or white blood count? absolutely Absolutely. And I think things that are often disregarded. So the classic is eosinophils. And a lot of doctors will say, well, if you don't have elevated eosinophils, you can't have parasites. Again, not true because not all parasites create histamine responses in the gut. Intamoeba histolytica does and worms do some others as well, but not all of them do. So you won't always have elevated eosinophils Although I think anything above 3%, even though that's still technically in the normal range, is a flag to me. I agree. Um, basophils as well is a very low percentage, but anything over 1% in basophils is, is a pretty strong indicator of parasites. Um, but the two that I, or the three that I find the most indicative are low total cholesterol in women particularly although i've seen it oh that's a new one low total cholesterol would be beneath 160. i even think that once you start dropping below 180 in women especially if there are hormonal complaints um, and you've got other parameters that it it it's worth investigating um, because again certain parasites particularly worms and intamoeba histolytica but there are others eat cholesterol. It's one of their main food sources. And they spit out LDL, they cleave off that cholesterol ester and they throw the LDL back. They're picky. They don't like the bad cholesterol. Uh. So LDL will rise while total cholesterol drops. I've seen some people with cholesterol as low as 105 and their oh doctors never say anything to them about it. Uh, because I think one of the biggest long-term downstream effects of chronic parasitic infection in the gut is um, hormonal issues in women. Uh, infertility, strange diagnoses like vulvodynia, interstitial cystitis, DIV, um, which is a, a form of uh, inflammatory vaginitis. All of those I've seen fairly often and every single time it's been a, it's been chronic parasites as the underlying cause. So the other two, um, so the low total cholesterol being low, alkaline phosphatase being low. Um, and now I just forgot what the third one was. I'll think of it in a minute, but alkaline phosphatase, oh, platelet volume, alkaline phosphatase. Oh, wait a minute. That's huge. Platelet volume, low platelets. Well, low platelet count in general and low alkaline phosphatase are both signs of just internal, like quote unquote malnutrition. Like if you just Google low alkaline phosphatase, you're going to come up with malnutrition as a diagnosis. Now, most people walking into my office are not clearly not truly malnourished, but their internal system is. And so platelet count is low. 
um, alkaline phosphatase is low. So all of this happens in the bone marrow. And if the body doesn't have enough raw materials to make the things that it makes in the bone marrow, like platelets, white blood cells, red blood cells, those things are going to be depleted over time. Platelet volume is the same. Not all labs run platelet volume, um, which is unfortunate, but they should. So when platelets are too big, so when they start to get over 10.5 in size, that to me is another sign of depletion. Platelets get smaller as they age. So if you see a lot of big platelets floating around in the bloodstream, again, it means that the bone marrow is pumping out platelets before they've had time to mature. It's trying to keep up with demand, but doesn't quite have the fuel that it needs to do it. Um, and I've just seen these parameters again and again and again on people's blood work for years, they'll be flagged and no one will say anything about it. So it's those are huge flags to me. Fascinating. And last but not least, talk to me about Epstein-Barr. <laughs> Epstein-Barr is another one that just like binders in mold illness, I feel like Epstein-Barr gets way more credit for things than it deserves. It tell, is a tell that to medical medium. He's made a fortune <laughs> out of books promoting Epstein-Barr as the root cause of most disease. Oh, yes, I know, because I, I get people who come to me and say, I have Epstein-Barr, how do I treat it? And it's true that some people, if you have Epstein-Barr titers that are high, which I do personally and have had them for years, one of the biggest causes of that is mold exposure and mold sensitivity and all wow. the resulting mold. It illness. all goes back to mold. Well, that's one thing that can do it. But also other chronic infections, I think if someone has a high EBV titers, you should also run the other viruses like Zoster and CMV and HHV6. Look at all the viruses that you can. And if you've got elevated viruses across the board, maybe low white blood cell count, um, low neutrophils, and potentially higher lymphocytes, those things would cue me in that there's an infection problem in general. And then you want to look at the Lyme disease sorts of things, mycoplasma, Borrelia, Bartonella, et cetera, because EBV is rarely a standalone. To me, it's a giant red flag that something's going on with the immune system, but it's just a surface pointer. It's the body telling you there's a problem, but you still need to dig a little deeper and figure out why does the body still think EBV is a problem? Because generally people acquired it when they were young. So unless they have an acute case of mono, they've probably had those antibodies for decades. So most people I find just don't look long enough. They sort of find a thing that's abnormal and they stop there and say, oh, this must be the cause. Sometimes that's true, but I think it's rarely that simple. Are you seeing any uprise in neurological conditions? I'm talking about MS, ALS, and Parkinson's. Absolutely. Um, as you know, I work with Palmer, you know, Palmer and, um, through her, I have that those are the people that come to her because of her own history with MS. And we just see so many people with diagnosed MS, but also kind of what I would call like pre MS, like they don't have an official diagnosis, but they've got a lot of the symptoms. Um, and then the others as well. Parkinson's, um, and also just other neurological things. And again, I think a lot of this, the first thing to look at when someone has 
any kind of neurological thing, even if it's just random numbness and tingling in extremities or weird electrical sensations in the body or anything that's a nerve pain, it's worth, again, looking at mold and fungal elements because it's pretty well known that the toxins from fungus, and it can be internal candida, not just external mold exposure, are extremely irritating to nerves. So any nerve disorders, even tinnitus, vertigo, vision issues, any sensations or lack of function in the body that are nerve related, that's a big thing to look at first and foremost. And often what I do with neuro people with neurological issues is we start there. We, we really make sure that the gut is clean of fungus and parasites and the sinuses, take that pressure off the system and then see what's left. It's not always the cause, but in a lot of cases, it, it's part of the problem. So why did you become a naturopath as we start to wind things down, Dr. Pedro? <laughs> You're obviously very, very bright, but why did you become a naturopath? Well, I think it was somewhat faded. <laughs> <laughs> looking back at how I ended up in naturopathic school, the universe was for sure holding, pushing me along. Um, but really the, the simple answer to that question is I was just a very sick child and the conventional medical world really never did anything for me. And my illnesses all revolved around allergies and asthma and you know, lo and behold, years later, I find out it's really just a mold allergy and toxin sensitivity but I was diagnosed with bronchitis and pneumonia and given loads and loads of antibiotics. And I met a naturopath when I was 19 years old, happened to move to the tiny town I lived in. And he was also an acupuncturist. And he did some very simple things for me, super simple looking back on it. But he did more for me in the year that I saw him than any doctor had done before. And so I decided when I was 19 that I was going to do what he did. <laughs> and he tried to dissuade me and said, you know, think about that. So I did. I went through college undergrad and I thought about it and I tried to find other kind of science driven. I've always been into science, um, science driven things. I was a botany major for a while and I just never found anything else that I was really drawn to. So at 19, I decided I was going to be a naturopath and lo and behold, here I am like 25 years later. <laughs> And how does your college, it was the National University of Natural Medicine, how does that compare to best year? Uh, you know, I don't know now. It's, it's schools, my favorite. You graduated it, from my favorite college. Yeah, at the time when I chose it, it was, I'm, I grew up in Oregon. Um, so part of it was coming back to Oregon. I, I felt comfortable living here. But also, um, historically, I don't know if this is true now, but historically, NUNM was known for its clinical program. Like that was really their focus. They got students into the clinics working with patients in the second year, even. Even the end of our first year, I think we were doing supportive things. So that's what I really liked was there was a lot of clinical exposure and exposure to actual patients. And Bastyr was always kind of known more for their research wing. Uh, that has changed because NUNM now also has a fairly strong research department. And I know Bastyr also has a clinical department. And Bastyr was started by a graduate of NUNM. Um, oh, so they're I linked. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're linked. I mean, it's named after John Bastyr. 
Um, but NUNM is the oldest. It's been around since 1956. And Bastyr was started in 78. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of history there. It was a great school. Did you know my friend Corey Resnick? That name sounds familiar. Very famous naturopath. And I remember visiting him in Oregon. So I'm just delighted that you made this your life's work. Tell us again how we can get in touch with you. Um, you can find my website at clearskynaturalmedicine.com. And you can also email me directly if you like at drsangeetapedro, so Pedro at gmail. Thank you so much for being my guest. Will you come back? Yes, I absolutely will. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank you. I want to thank my listeners for listening in yet once again to First Lady of Nutrition broadcast. Have a beautiful, healthy, and mold-free week, everyone. Shalom Vraha. Please don't forget to subscribe and like First Lady of Nutrition podcast. Thank you so very much.